0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Squarespace, Hymns, Calm, The Great Courses Plus, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. On September 11th of 2015, we released a series of the mysterious deaths of a young hiking party led by Igor Dyatlov. After Dyatlov and his friends did not show up when and where they were supposed to, they were found dead in the snow, scattered in various directions from the tent they cut open from the inside to escape. The circumstances of their deaths were extraordinarily varied and unusual, and the mystery of what happened to them remains unsolved to this day. When we recorded that series, we could not have known that almost three years later we would have a guest on the show for another topic, who has also done a significant investigation of the Diatlov Pass incident. That man is author Keith McCloskey, and we recently interviewed him for our series on the disappearance of the Flannan Isles Lightkeepers, which he has also written a book about. Keith has been to Dyatlov Pass himself and was recently instrumental in the landmark development of convincing the Russian Federation to reopen the case six decades later. Astonishing legends supported Keith's efforts to help raise money for that through a GoFundMe page he set up. Tonight, Keith returns to the show to provide his own perspective on the mystery and share what he can about the new investigation into what happened at Dyatlov Pass. (laughs)
1: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends.
0: I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Relatives, the media, and the public still ask prosecutors to determine the truth and don't hide their suspicions that something was hidden from them. Russian prosecutor spokesperson, Alexander Kuronyoy. Join us tonight for an update on the Dyatlov Pass incident. Hi, I'm Forrest Burgess, and whenever I'm not producing Astonishing Legends, I am producing Astonishing Legends.
1: <laughs> wait, wait, okay, all right, well done, well done. Right. <laughs> See how easy that was, folks? We are running out of those listener segues. If you want your own shot at internet fame, which is worth about what we pay for it, mm. that, that'd be nothing. Our <laughs> editor, Sarah, needs more segues, so send them in. Just go to tinyurl.com slash astonishing. Segways. That's tinyurl.com slash astonishingsegways, and just follow the instructions there.
0: Yes, go hear your voice on the internets. <laughs> nice work. Okay, well, a couple of quick notes tonight for housekeeping, and the first one being that I finally made a page, a web page, at our own website where our listeners can go find all of our sponsors' offer codes. So that'd be our special URLs and promo codes, whatever you need to find those products you like, And it's all in one place. Yeah, this is great. If you're listening on the go and you want to come back to check out one of the sponsors or what the offer was, just point your
1: browser on any computer or mobile device to astonishinglegends.com slash sponsor dash offers. There's a little hyphen there. So that's astonishinglegends.com
0: slash sponsor dash offers offers, but
1: what's the easier way
0: to get Well, to you it? just go to astonishinglegends.com where there's a bunch of fun stuff anyway. You go to the very top of the page and kind of towards the right-hand side, the upper right-hand side, you'll see links. like Right home, there in the top-level yeah, navigation. Yeah, Patreon, Tess's terrific blog entries, and within that you'll see a link called Sponsor Offers. You just click on that and that'll take you to a page where I believe every sponsor we've ever had that's still viable is there listed alphabetically, plus all the deals you'll get and their special URLs and links and promo codes and all that. So it's all in one place. There you go.
1: Also, this is kind of fun. For those of you that remember our series on the mysterious disappearance of Flight 19, you may remember that we had on some remote viewing experts to talk about efforts they'd made investigating that case. Notably, we spoke with controlled remote viewing expert and teacher Lori Williams, as well as one of her star students, Jed Bendix. Lori has an online school at Intuitive Specialist's Dot com and Forrest has even taken the first course over there with what I thought were some pretty startling results right out of the gate, actually.
0: Well, it's a very fascinating process, I must say, and especially one to participate in, that anybody can learn. Well, Lori will no doubt be back on the show in the future, but in the meanwhile, if, like us, you are fascinated with remote viewing and specifically how various governments have used it over the years. There's a new documentary about that that just came out from filmmaker Lance Mungia that features Stanford physicist Russell Targ, who is part of the CIA's Project Stargate, or one of those mysterious remote viewing projects. It also profiles our friend Lori and some of her students. It's called Third Eye Spies, and
1: it just premiered on iTunes, Vimeo, Google Play, and Amazon, or you can find it at
0: thirdeyespies.com. And all these links are in our show notes for this episode, folks. Okay, let's get across the pond to Ireland. This is an update show,
1: which we have been wanting to do for a while, but we were just waiting for something to happen. And we we know that there's a demand for update shows. There are people that are interested in.
0: When there's news. Well, yeah.
1: When there's news, we do them. And that's why they're few and far between, because you want to get a good chunk of information. We are also hoping to do one on the Summerton Man sometime later this year, depending on what we hear from Professor Derek Abbott. But with regard to. We know who it is. (laughs) Yeah. We figured it out. No.
0: Oh, sorry. That's someone else. But when we're thinking about it and when news. News stories come up, I personally, don't like it when you hear a mysterious story in the news, and there's no follow-up. You never find out what happens. Yeah, yeah. So when we can, we like to do that as well, give you some up-to-date information. Plus, yeah, this story is one that has really stuck with the listeners. They've asked about it since we aired it. Everyone's following it still. It's in the backs of people's minds, so it's one of their favorite topics, I think.
1: Yeah, the Dialov Pass shows, it's a lot of milestones for us, actually. And before we did this interview that we have tonight, I had gone back and listened to them, which I do not usually go back and listen to our old shows because they make me cringe. (laughs) Me too. Because we were less refined, I guess. But you know what? It played okay. We were interrupting each other a lot more (laughs) back in those days. It had no commercials because we had no sponsors yet, if you can believe that. That was episodes 23 and 24. And we were bi-weekly at that time. So that was nearly a year of shows we had done by the time we did Dyatlov. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's a whole year doing the Astonishing Legends thing. With zero income, for those of you that want to get into podcasting. (laughs) Yeah, that that was another
0: half a year as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, continued after that. But Dialoft Pass also was a milestone in another way in that Tess, it was her first show with us. Yeah. That's really interesting. As we were digging through our old notes, we found the very first research emails from Tess. It made me weepy-eyed. It's really cool. So it, it was a milestone show for us, but also in terms of the investigation and the way it was covered and how much it hooked both of us in, it was something that really struck a chord with us. And we have continued to follow it as much as we can. Now, obviously, considering that the bodies were found in late February of 1959, it's been a long time. So when you're following something like this and looking for an update, especially from a communist country, your hopes are not very high. And that was probably where we would have left it. I mean, we were keeping an eye on it. But then we did the series fairly recently on the Flannan Isles and the Mm -hmm. disappearance of the lighthouse keepers. Which was a fun story to do, all about the lighthouses and everything. And the expert on that particular topic that we interviewed, an author, was a man named Keith McCloskey. Mm -hmm. Keith had written a book and studied the Flannan Isles case extensively. So he came on the show, as you may remember, if you've heard that series. What we didn't know, really, until after we got in touch with Keith, was that he also was very, very much involved in investigating the Dyatlov past mystery.
0: Yeah, it turns out he has a lot of similar interests to us. Yes, (laughs) he does. (laughs) And he takes a serious approach that we find really refreshing in that it's very even-handed, objective, thoroughly researched, and... I think presented in a way which doesn't hit you over the head with one theory or the other. Although of course he's got his own ideas and he'll let you know about them, but presented in a very well done manner. Yes.
1: So, and oh, by the way, I want to quickly acknowledge that there are chainsaws running. It's a Sunday. I, we felt sure it would be quiet around here, but there are some chainsaws in the background. I hired those guys just to give us a challenge. (laughs) Sorry, that's probably not the best idea. Uh, Yes, but the show must go on. So we're recording anyway. So if you happen to hear some buzzing in the background, that's just what that is. So anyway, people had started reaching out to us, of course, to, tell us on Twitter and all our other social media platforms that the Dyatlov case had been reopened, which is pretty groundbreaking news considering all the time that's passed where it
0: wasn't being reopened. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, one thing about cases that are that old, decades old, is that the physical evidence has deteriorated to such a degree that it's hard to get materials. We're seeing that with the Buka case. Well, that's underwater, but, yeah, you know, those materials, yeah, there's a lot of corrosion as time passes It breaks down. uh, Uh, Of course, we're talking about
1: the aircraft that might be Amelia's aircraft. Exactly.
0: The episode update that we did with Bill Snavely. Yes. And the problems that he's having trying to recover decent evidence from the crash site. And again, of course, that's underwater and that has some corrosion here. But we're talking also about a place in Russia that gets very severe weather, a decent amount of snowfall. And as we'll hear tonight, the summers are not much more pleasant either because it's very mucky, a lot of mud and muck. Well, it's kind of like, you know, the tundra in Alaska. It's not completely dry. You'll lose your shoes. Yes. If you're not careful. So it's rough conditions all the way around. And we're talking about, yeah, a case that happened in 1959. And what's interesting about, you know, people contacting us to tell us that
1: the case had been reopened is that. We already knew that because we got to contribute to the efforts to get it reopened because those efforts were undertaken by Keith McCloskey to a certain extent. And you'll hear more about that tonight. He was the second highest donor of funds contributing to the reopening of the case. So it was not a surprise to us when it reopened because we gave money to his GoFundMe, or Astonishing Legends, our corporation did, forced to hope that's all right with you. Uh, We gave... (laughs) uh, We we, were
0: just going to spend it on lunch anyway. Yeah,
1: right. We pledged some dollars over there to help get that going, and it worked. So he, in conjunction with the Dyatlov Foundation, which is based in the Russian Federation as it's now known. So that group is instrumental and was behind the efforts to reopen the investigation. And Keith had started a GoFundMe, which was designed to raise funds to help contribute to that. And it turns out that worked out. And so the investigation got reopened. And for once, we actually were ahead of the curve on something interesting to our listeners. So we actually were able to procure an interview with Keith McCloskey about the reopening of the investigation, which he's been very much involved in. And in this case, we got to be a part of it, as opposed to coming in after the fact. And he was happy to come on the show. So we sat down with him and talked to him about all the latest developments. And we're going to go now to an interview with him. And then we'll be back after the interview to deconstruct it a little bit. We're welcoming Keith McCloskey back to the show. You listeners may remember him from being our guest on the Flannan Isle series, which was a lot of fun. And it turns out Keith is interested in a lot of the same kinds of things we are here at Astonishing Legends, not the least of which is Dyatlov Pass, which was the first really in-depth series that we cut our teeth on. That was our 23rd and 24th episodes, I think. We're now 100 episodes later, but it's always close to our hearts, and the story is one that still has a lot of questions that people want to see answered all over the world. What we'd like to talk to you about, Keith, was when we had you on to talk about the Flannan Isles, which you're also an expert on, is we didn't even realize that you had a background with Dyatlov, and so I guess the first thing is I wanted to do was ask you to relate to our listeners. They know the overall story because we covered it, and you've heard that series yourself, so you don't necessarily have to recap what happened. It's more that I'm interested in, or we're, Forrest and I are both interested in, what your perspective on the case is, if it's different from what we talked about And what led you to get involved in it? And and what have you done up until this point with regard to investigating Dyalov Pass?
2: As you say, we all know the story, the basic story of what happened to them, where we all diverge, I think, is in the theories of it. I came across this story because I've been a, a big fan may not be the right word, but I'm really into Soviet military history, particularly the Cold War. And that's how I got into the story originally, because one of the theories was that a Soviet bomber, a Tu-95, which was a, the long-range nuclear bomber in the 1950s, well, I mean, they're still around now, but one of those had overflown the uh, Dietlo Pass that night, and we have confirmation of that from one of the crew members, I later learned from the Dietlo Foundation. So well, i, I heard about it from somebody else who's into the soviet military he told me hey do you want to know of a really weird thing that happened in russia involving the soviet military so that, that's basically how i got started on it so i thought it was such an amazing weird story that you obviously you want to find out more so uh, i got in touch with yuri Konsevich at the uh Dyatlov foundation who's like the keeper of the most of your listeners will probably know yuri but uh, he was at the funerals of the hikers when they, they were brought back to Sverdlovsk. So I got in touch with him, and then I, I've been over a couple of times now, and I've been up to the pass to obviously do background work on it. But uh, unlike a lot of people, I think, to me, it's like a, they have a fixed idea. It's my theory, and I'll bend it every way I can to fit my theory. Any discrepancies, you know, there's a lot of... a anomalies in this case you can say well it was an avalanche so then you'll get 10 reasons why it isn't an avalanche but i think the problem with sticking to a theory is you're trying to go at those 10 reasons for the avalanche for instance and make it fit your theory and it doesn't really work that way i think you have to keep an open mind on it and it it could be of all the theories it could be more than one theory it could be two theories involved You know, I'm not going to list that you've been through quite a few of them. But for me, the reason I favor the military theory, people will say, oh, well, you favor the military theory because you're into Soviet military history. And basically, I'm doing the very thing I've been criticizing, trying to make it all fit. But (laughs) if I find an anomaly, then I will think, well, This doesn't fit this theory that's the problem and i'll give you an example of that one of the divergences if you like of the military aspect of it is this business of a missile test but when you look at it you think some of them died of the cold and some of them died of horrendous injuries but this idea of an icbm i mean the size of those things all right the booster stage will have fallen off so Okay, even if you say, okay, well, it was a missile that caused the accident, even with the stages dropping off, you're still left with a gigantic 50-foot or 60-foot object dropping out of the sky without a warhead, because if there'd been a warhead on one of those, it would have obliterated everything for a couple of miles around. But a large metal object falling from the sky doesn't give you just chest injuries. If it lands on top of you, it'll flatten you. So how does that work? That's the way I look at it, you know, a missile, if there's an explosion, if any of the missiles, there's quite a few missiles, it could be. One of them is the Moria cruise missile. But again, you're coming back to the same thing. How does that cause chest injuries? How did it cause an injury behind the ear? This sort of thing. How does somebody lose their tongue through that? It just doesn't fit. That's the problem. I actually think also, though, that and. I've been criticised for it, but I, I think a lot of facts, in inverted commas, in the case have been altered to make it so difficult to get to the bottom of it. The aspect of half of them dying of injuries and half of them dying of the cold straight away, you say, well, that's weird. Some of them are injured and some of them aren't. I don't follow with the fact that they, in inverted commas, had the injuries by falling into a ravine. I've actually stood in that ravine and ravines conjures up an image of the Grand Canyon, but it's about twenty feet from the top down to the bottom, and the sides are they're sloping, but even without snow there you wouldn't really seriously injure yourself. And the other thing about it is the ravine and the cedar tree were quite close to the edge of the tree line there was vegetation around you can see it in the pictures because that was quite exposed that would have been full of snow anyway so i, I don't really see how the injuries you see, this is where people are, are bending i don't want to name names but people say well such and such a thing happened whether it was the mancy or whatever made them go down there and they fell in or they were brutalized or something but to fall in there it would have been full of snow in February. There wouldn't have been exposed rocks, I don't believe, at the bottom of it. The sides are very gentle. So I don't see how it could happen. And and what's happening is people are saying it's the Diatlov theory equivalent of a book where they say at the very end, suddenly a lot of shots rang out and everybody dropped dead, to me anyway. Right. It, it doesn't explain it. That business about they fell just doesn't cut it for me, I'm afraid. But then you're left with, well, what did happen to them? You know, I'm I'm wondering a little bit here, but I'm just trying to say what I think about various theories because none of them, there's not one theory that fits at all, all all the variables of the evidence. There's not one theory that fits it.
1: Hi, I'm Annie. And I'm Claudia. We're live from Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen.
2: And when we're, we're not, not roaming, roaming Copenhagen,
1: but <laughs> you mentioned that you had information that an aircraft, over a military aircraft, overflew the night that the incident happened.
2: We have, yeah, we have that from a crew member.
1: Did he say what the mission was or what they were doing? If no, they, no,
2: he okay. overflew the. Uh, they were on a training exercise that night, so. We try and use a bit of conjecture as to what they were doing. They obviously weren't dropping the nuclear weapons. but I'm still researching this, but there is a training area. To, they're called polygons in Russia. It's a training area for uh, bombers, and now I'm, I'm still trying to find out where this particular one is, but it's north of the pass somewhere, And I'm trying to also find out if they were using it, you know in 1959, because it's in use today. But that area of the the northern Urals is, I wouldn't say overpopulated, it's quite a sparsely populated area, but you've got the Mansies are living there and all the rest of it, so they wouldn't be using it as a live training area, I wouldn't have thought. But planes go off course and weaponry goes off course you get all sorts of accidents
1: did that crew member describe that flight as kind of a standard typical flight was it did they overfly the area frequently or
2: all he said was that they had taken off from their base near kiev it's a yuzin air base and flew to uh, on an exercise to the north the thing is you see uh, those exercises they were quite regular in those days because the training exercise they did their bases are dotted further south to be further away from the American bombers. So they take off as if they were going to conduct an attack on the USA. Canada, they were all in NATO. But there used to be uh, another line of aerodromes up at the Arctic Circle on mainland Russia where they would land and refuel, and then they would continue their attack. But there are areas there which they used to use for bombing practice it's an ongoing thing, the research on this anyway, but I don't know because, you see, if, if I come back to the idea of a parachute mine, which I thought it might be, but these things give off really powerful blasts. Your lungs explode, your eardrums explode. None of that seemed to have happened to them. You've got serious injuries like a car crash to a couple of them. So if it's a massive weapon like that, Surely it would you know, would affect all of them.
1: As well as the trees and everything else, I would imagine.
2: And everything else. But that's come on to, again, just coming back, I know I'm tending to harp on about the military side of it. You've heard of the uh, thermobaric weapons, fuel air yes. uh, bomb. Well, again, they're quite massive explosions because the Germans had started experimenting with them prior to the war. And they were, I think they were actually starting to use them towards the end of the one, and the Soviets took over a lot of that research. And what I didn't realise, and I've only found recently, was that the Soviets had developed infantry weapons involving thermobaric warheads. The idea being, and I've got a couple of pictures of some of them, they they were weapons that uh, were like bazookas that would fire a thermobaric warhead, but it would have a, a really powerful impact, more than a hand grenade, but still restricted to a small area. Like uh, fifty feet, how does that weapon work for our listeners that might not be familiar with well, it, it would be fired and it would have a proximity fuse, obviously, if it hit, say something like a tank, it explodes on impacts, but they were also fitted with proximity fuses so that it would explode at a given distance. They weren't used for ground to air defense they were ground to ground attack, if you like, so that they could fire one from, say, half a mile, probably not as far as that, but maybe a bit closer, but the, it would explode above the ground as a kind of an anti-infantry weapon. Okay. Hand grenades tend to be, I mean, again, it has the same effect, but they, these were far more powerful, but again, with a much more limited range. But to criticise that theory, you've got to say, well, you have infantry men up there firing these kinds of weapons, and why? What were they doing up there? It's not an impossibility, but it's getting into the realms of pushing it a bit to make it fit.
0: Well, while we're on this line of thinking here, one question I wanted to ask before we get too far afield here, and uh, and I forget to ask it. You've seen the last two photos that were supposedly on the black and white roll of film, which show the aerial-like explosions in the sky at at dusk. Do you believe that those photos are real? Were they really on, like the last two shots on that roll?
2: Yes, I, I do believe it. And Yuri Konsevich still has the actual film. I mean, not all the film is there, and they've all been a lot of them are being cut off. They're not in. I remember him showing me one reel, but a lot of the reels of film are being cut up. Right, uh, they were sliced up during the actual investigation. And some of them are missing. But I, I, I do believe that is real. But there's particular significance to me. And it's it's white, but it looks like something falling out of the sky. Now, I've seen a couple of pictures. There's one of um a BOAC Boeing 707, which cr- broke up in 1966 over Mount Fuji. And somebody took a picture of that falling out of the sky. It was literally torn apart. Violent clear air turbulence. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't actually look like a plane falling out of the sky, but it is because you can see the wings are being slapped off. This picture reminds me very much of that. It's like an aircraft or a drone of some kind having been hit in the sky, and it's falling out of the sky, and it very strongly resembles that picture.
0: Hmm. What do you think, then, is the connection between this photo and the fate of the Dyatlov party?
2: It seems to me, and the way I'm loosely working towards it, is that there was some kind of an exercise going on. There's no dispute there's something happening in the night sky. There's far too many people and witnesses talking about it. I genuinely think, and this is one of the reasons why the authorities weren't falling over themselves to investigate it, I genuinely think that there was an exercise of some uh, some kind going on, and it was an air defence exercise because... The Urals is is a heavy militarized area north of what was Sverdlovsk. You had a nuclear weapons storage area not that far south of the Dyatlov Pass, although it wasn't there then, but there's a a large uh, ICBM site there now as well, south of that, and you had tank factories and weapons factories, all the rest of it. So it was quite an exposed area, and they would have been keen to have protected it from attack from the north. I've actually found some declassified CIA stuff they had targeted the satellites when eventually this is after Dyatlov but when they did get them only a couple of years later when they got the satellite photography going they were looking at the area around Vorkuta to the north to see what missile sites were there so it was obviously an area that they had to protect for anything coming from the north so I think there was some kind of military exercise going on because it's something happening in the sky and it's and whatever it is, whether it's a, an incoming attack, they're attacking, testing, if you like, the ground to air defenses.
0: On this line of military exercise thinking, do you think that there's any authenticity or connection to or veracity with the statement by the Russian Air Force helicopter captain that he did not want to fly with any remains that were not in zinc covered containers? Or yes, so I read, yeah,
2: yeah, I read that because um, it could be that the weapons that they were using had radioactive warheads. Now, I know for a fact that the Americans um, had, a, they were like tactical nuclear weapons for right. air to air. They weren't gigantic like an ICBM warhead, but they were right. nuclear warheads to use against aircraft. You know, the, the thing with Russia is you didn't know anything unless you needed to know. I mean, right. It's, it's, same in a lot of military, but I would imagine that a helicopter pilot in, you know, a captain in the air force would roughly know what was going on in operations. You can't hide a big exercise if it's going on. And for the military to say, well, you know, we had nothing to do with it, we don't know what's going on, but there was something going on in the night sky. So the guy who was in charge of the Urals military area down in Sverdlovsk. Um, would probably be put in front of a firing squad if he didn't know what the hell was going on in the north of his region. So I'm pretty sure that there was something going on. The genie, yeah, that's it. the genie. That's the I had to look yeah. it up.
1: I did not. I'm not going to pretend <laughs> that I knew that. Um...
2: No, no, but that's the one. It did have a nuclear, small nuclear warhead, uh-huh. and it just makes me think that possibly the Russians were developing something along a similar lines. Now, I met a friend of mine, uh, and I'm not going to give his name because he held a very I knew him years and years ago. He was at Edinburgh University. I'm sure he won't mind me alluding to him, but he was uh, head of research for um, a major American arms supplier, defence supplier, if you like. And he did a lot of research when he was studying for his degree on papers coming out of the old, not the Soviet Union so much, the Warsaw Pact. His research was in censors, and radar that that kind of thing and uh, defense systems for anti-aircraft and he said that a lot of the stuff coming out of the warsaw pact was a good bit in advance of the usa in that particular field they were more advanced in sensors and radar and he, he gave me the scenario that what he thinks may have happened and i'm going to put this into my book but they had to defend the northern region and that they were experimenting with aerial platforms. That, that it was too early for the drones, you know, the reapers that you see now. But this was the beginnings of it. He said possibly a helicopter-based platform, and it was using sensors to track what was on the ground because it was a huge area to cover. You'd need probably a whole army up there if you're going to try and track saboteurs, etc. Because one thing they would always worry about was if there's going to be an attack from NATO or from the USA. Teams of saboteurs would go in to disable any air defenses, so how do you defend against that and his view is that they were already experimenting with aerial platforms using sensors with a command and control on the ground, and that what may they may have picked up was the large metal um, thing in the tent, the cookie, the stove
0: right right,
2: yeah, a large metal object with people you know the radar scan of the ground would have picked the people up, but you see. They weren't meant to be up there anyway, because they'd already deviated from their path. So straight away, if that gets fed back to the controller, you think, well, what's a large metal object, which they can't differentiate, doing up on the side of a mountain with a group of people with it? And he said that typically, even in the early days of of looking at these aerial platforms, that between... Identifying a potential foe uh, as an object, you know, an object on the ground as a something very suspicious, and the command to fire, you know, it could be carrying missiles or something like that, or guns. But um, the time lapse is very short, well, probably as short as two, anything between two to five minutes. There's, there was little control over these earlier things. And so, you know, it would need to be overridden. But the Soviets have always had a policy, it seems to me, of shoot first, ask questions later. Say it had been a saboteur group and the nuclear weapons place had been attacked, you know, the storage area by a group of saboteurs. So the questions would be asked, well, you identified a large metal object with a group of people. What the hell did you do about it? So it may have been, a, well, we'll attack this and ask the questions later. The uh, best example of that is the old Korean yeah. you know, Flight
1: 007. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Shoot that down. We'll find out what it is later because it, it's not where it should be.
1: Yeah.
2: But it, again, you come back to the injuries. You know, say for instance, they picked up the stove and let's say a small missile was fired at it and it exploded not far away. If you're sitting in the tent and you hear a loud explosion, maybe 30, 50 feet away, you think what the hell's that? and followed possibly by gunfire or something. You've got to sash your way out of the tent. You're not going to bother hanging about, well, you know, if you've got nothing on. They may have come out, seen that there was something going on in the night sky, and said, well, we better get away from here now, because we're obviously in danger, and then make their way to the bottom. I mean, there's flaws with it, but it's on the way to working for me.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So, well, let me ask you this. Let's bring the clock forward a little bit into... Recent developments, I mean, for our listeners, I would like for you to maybe maybe you could talk about to the extent that you're able about the current push to have the investigation into what happened reopened.
2: There's been many attempts to have it reopened in uh, November, the year before last, Yuri and Leonid went down to Moldova to see Yevgeny Okishev, who was Lev Ivanov's boss. He's in his mid-90s, and he's still alive, believe it or not. And he's still got all his marbles. And they discussed the case with him. And his view was to take the line. They discussed it all together. And Leonid Proshkin, obviously, was a practicing lawyer. And
1: Can you tell our listeners who all the players are here? Just a brief discussion. Well, well
2: Yuri really Konseiwicz runs the Diaklov Foundation in Yekaterinburg. Leonid Proshkin is a, a lawyer. Who's had obsessed with the Diatlov case as much as the rest of us, and um, he's he's made attempts before to try and get it reopened, as he's seen a lot of what should we say anomalies in it. Uh, so he tried to get it reopened for you know to have it all investigated again. Yevgeny uh, Opytsev used to work in the sword prosecutor's office and he was second in command and he was Levy Ivanov's boss
1: Who was Levy Ivanov?
2: He was the the prosecutor on the case he was the, the chief investigator Right uh, Ivanov is long that's the thing a lot of people are dying out now but he's is uh, Yevgeny okishev as we say in the UK still got his marbles I'm assuming you've got a similar expression over there. Yeah, that one that, works here. It <laughs> works is, here too. That is the, that it, is it's the it's common expression. He's a book in his mid-90s. I mean, somebody quite rudely put on a review of my book, uh, were Ramblings of an Old Man, Well, he doesn't even know him. And uh, yeah. although quite a rude comment to make. But he talked it through with them and suggested that they take the line uh, of trying to have the case reopened because the remaining relatives are entitled to a fair treatment of what happened to their relatives their sons daughters sisters brothers they were never given satisfaction if you like you know uh, unknown compelling force or compelling unknown force quite frankly pardon my french a lot of bollocks really it doesn't mean anything yeah it was okishev who said that when the uh, final results of the autopsy were produced yurokov arrived from Moscow and closed the case that day and told them to finalize the report. And that's why we've ended up with the Okishev said we didn't know what to put. Um, So we had to put something to close it down. And basically, that's what they came up with. Lev Ivanov wrote it, but it was under instruction from uh, his boss, Okishev. hey it's Tess this one time I emailed listeners al at gmail dot com and all I got was a segue come on all right back to the show
1: How did you get involved in this let's talk about the GoFundMe and and this and how does that relate to the diatla foundation and and uh
2: yeah well basically i I've, I've actually uh funded a, num- a couple of things um i mean i helped i chipped it I would have gone down to Moldova but I, I was actually had another uh, was booked to go to France at the time, otherwise I would have gone with him. But I, I help out with uh, finance. Anything I make from the book, I, I mean, there's been one or two criticisms I've read, making money out of the deaths of this group. But I can tell you that I have not even made back a quarter of what I've spent on it. And what little I do make out of it, I try and contribute to the foundation to further any research or any costs involved with it. So that after they'd been to see uh, uh, Okushev, they came back and uh, decided to have a go at trying to um, officially reopen the case. Because the biggest problem so far, it costs money to do this sort of thing. And what people have been doing, have been writing to either the uh, prosecutor's office in the Sverdlovsk Oblast or to the investigative committee in, in Moscow, or to President Putin's office to say, you know, I, I'm deeply concerned about what happened to these people. Can we not have this case reopened? And sometimes the a reply doesn't go back. And like, uh, I know somebody who wrote to President Putin's office, and that was sent straight to the, you know, they acknowledged it. His request was referred to the prosecutor's office in Katerinburg, but And the response is always, this was investigated in 1959 and uh, we see no reason to reopen it. But this time we we got affidavits done by um, Yuri Doroshenko's sister to present with our application that she had a right to know what happened to her brother and also the rest of them, but it was specific to her, and to get the case officially reopened to come up with a, a, a proper solution or conclusion, because it wasn't. And her feeling was that it, it, it was it just was not investigated properly, which, I mean, it probably was going to be investigated properly, but it wasn't. So that's how it was approached. And the point about it is we expected to be knocked back. There's 30 days from when you make the application, pay your fees, you have to get a response within 30 days. And we didn't get one. And we, we had to chase for a response, which we got about 10 days after that or two weeks after that, which basically said, You know, uh, this was investigated, blah, 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 avalanche, you know, high winds, the usual. We see no reason to reopen it. But a lot of work has been done behind the scenes. And I can also tell you that an application was made to the uh, Human Rights Commission as well. They rejected it. But like I said, we expected that. They, They felt it should be dealt with through the proper channels, through the investigative committee. We appealed. A lot of work was done behind the scenes by Leonid Proshkin, and I'm very pleased to say that, uh, well, as we all know now, it's, it's been reopened. They put fairly strict limits on the actual investigation, I think. So they're going to be looking at the weather because that's what their view of it is. Half of me wants to say what I think about that aspect of it, but half of me also thinks I should shut up and wait and see what they come up with. They're, they're going up there. There'll be an official party going up to the pass next month to look at the site, you know, work everything out, and uh, see what they can come up with. What does surprise me, though, is that there isn't going to be um, any kind of a criminal investigation, even leaving aside military accidents, radiation, or anything, because one of the theories, or a couple of the theories, are that they were murdered, whether it's by the Mansi or you know, people illegally mining up there, whichever way way you look at it. There's one view of a guy in following them up from Serov with his friends having been insulted by them and killing them up there. But I'm surprised that there is no criminal aspect to it, because it's a theory that I think should be looked at. I know the Mansi have been cleared of it, and to be honest, I don't really go along with the Mansi theory. But again, without proof, you know, it could be a possibility.
1: You know, earlier you described the possibility of a sort of a collateral damage-friendly fire situation, you know, just they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. It doesn't seem like we could ever expect an acknowledgement of that to come out, at least not of the current Soviet government, if that was the case, though, right?
2: No, yeah, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. I mean, uh, put it this way, if it was any other... European country, people are afraid of the press finding out about it, but that's not a problem they've got over there. There are accidents happen. But uh, I've said in my book about uh, gigantic explosions up in uh, Murmansk back in the late 70s, where the whole stock of the Northern Fleet's missiles were went up over a series of three days, including a senior admiral was hundreds killed and a senior admiral Killed and um, his death was reported as died in the line of his work mm-hmm. you 're just not going to get it because uh I mean I know it was a an equal society or it was viewed as such where everybody had the same rights as everybody else. but this group of people were all future leaders, you know good communists, and it 's not like a bunch of drunkards that were just out killing looking for bears or wolves to kill illegally there they were they had some standing within the Communist Party, so a, a decent group of young, highly intelligent students all murdered by gross negligence, if you like. I mean, I can't see that coming out at all.
1: Let me ask you this. We had read, and it, it was it was only out for a couple of days before it disappeared, maybe I think less than a year ago. There was a – briefly, there was a mention of a, a new body being found in the same area in the past, which it wasn't even clear whether it was from a long time ago or a recent person. Do you know anything about that?
2: This was recently? Yeah. Yeah. Is that the guy in the cabin? I don't know. I don't know much yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. Well, it's a strange story because, you no know, his name escapes me. He was from Chelyabinsk, and um, he had left his family and uh, gone to live uh, in an in inverted commas sex type cult. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, in in Russia, and, and apparently the cult had disbanded. Obviously, not enough action, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I've read and heard. Anyway, okay. and he ended up uh, in the Diatlov Pass. He'd managed one. I think he'd managed one. I may not be sure of the facts, but I believe he'd managed one winter up there, and he was just found in a cabin. Frozen to death, but on oh his camera God. or in his possession, they found um, memory cards. Oh, right! On his camera. He had over ten thousand images of the Dyatlov Pass. Wow. Which is really weird. Uh, he'd, he'd basically frozen to death. Yeah. Pretty harsh place up there. It's in the winter. You know, I mean, he gets Chelyabinsk is much further south, south of uh, Yekaterinburg, so you know the weather's a lot milder. So to go from that and then put yourself up in really extreme conditions. I mean, obviously, the the Mansi live up there, but they're used to it. He was obviously a city dweller, and apparently he'd become obsessed by the Diatlov story, but it's a strange one. But he was obviously a strange character because he'd, he'd left his wife and children and gone to live with this cult and... Then, when that had disbanded, he'd have expected him to go back to his family, but he didn't. He just went up to the Diatlov Pass. It was—it's quite a strange one, but it's—it's it's a strange place. Let's face it. You know, I suppose it attracts—I uh, wouldn't say weird people because we're interested in it, but <laughs> okay. but uh, it's got a strange fascination, shall we say.
1: So what are the next steps? What's happening now with the reopened investigation? And you seem to be right in the middle of it. You're instrumental in getting this to, uh, to well, move
2: Well, I, I was the second lawyer. I mean, I set up a GoFundMe campaign. I mean, it was not mega bucks. I've got a friend who would, would have paid the, all the fees. You know, he's made a, a, you know, done well in life. And he, yeah. was, he said, if you get stuck, just let me know. I'll pay the, the full amount. But I thought it was a good chance for people to get involved and – I was the second largest contributor, our largest contributor, really good, decent person lives in Tennessee, I won't say his name because he doesn't want any publicity. Uh But again, he gave two large chunks of money into it. And he said, if you need any more, just let me know. So, you know, it was a chance to get a lot of people involved. I think people like to be involved in this kind of thing. And we're not talking mega bucks either. So it's not like I'm operating some Hong Kong boiler room scam. <laughs> um, you know. So, anyway, we raised the money. The thing is, you know, there's, there's a chance they could have just turned around and said, drop dead. And you know, we've told you before. And thanks for the money, by the way. The money also included, by the way, the cost of trips back and forth between Moscow for Leonid and Yuri and any incidentals that had to be paid so Mm -hmm. but it it wasn't a lot of money the end result however whichever way you look at it it's been reopened and the next big step is next month when they go up to the pass to officially investigate the scene i'm possibly going well i will hopefully be going up there in april early april with a television crew um they're they're making a a one-hour documentary about the whole thing so i'm Hopefully I'm going to find out a bit more about what's going on and who knows if I can meet one or two of the players, but um, the official side, I'll see if we can do that. And I'll, I'll fill you in when I get back. Well, yeah, we would
1: love to have you on if with whatever updates that you get that you're allowed to share, we would really, our listeners, I'll tell you what, of course, the news broke that the investigation was reopening and a few people were tweeting at us about it, of course, and. I was kind of offhanded. I manage our Twitter account. I just, I think I replied and I said, well, yeah, we're actually talking to Keith McCloskey who was on for and Isles and he's going to come back on with an update about this and we'll get you everybody up to speed. And that tweet got more traction than anything we've posted in years just oh, right. oh yeah it was retweeted and liked like 400 times or something it took off like wildfire so yeah. you know i think for me I, you know i can't speak for forest he's sitting right here but like i may have underestimated how invested people were in knowing what's happening with this and and still wanting answers from it, you know?
0: It still comes up as people's uh, listeners, one of their favorite
2: episodes, I think, that we've done. Even though
0: it was done such a long time ago and we were just kind of... Yeah, I mean,
2: I I will say this here. There is a view that they've reopened the case to permanently shut it down. I mean, Mm. you know, that's got to be a possibility, but um, right, the way I look at it is that the doors open at the moment. It'll be an opportunity for people to speak their mind about what may have happened, because the case is open. Who will do it? I don't know. But if somebody feels uh, that it wasn't an avalanche, it wasn't high winds, or the physical elements, if you like, if it's nothing to do with that, then why are you not looking at these areas, A, B, C, D, E? I mean, I'll say now, they're not going to look at aliens. They've already dismissed that as rubbish. And there's no disrespect to anybody who follows any alien theory or yeti theory Uh, i keep a completely open mind on the whole thing just provide me with a bit of evidence is all i ever ask but there is this feeling that it's going to follow very rigorous guidelines if you like but having said that even if you come out with a guideline even if you say well there was an avalanche you can also say and i'd like to think this can be put to the investigation that how can it be an avalanche when Nobody knows exactly where the tent was. I know they talk about photogrammetry experts, but I've, I've been in touch with a few, and all of them have said to me there's not enough information to say where the tent was. But I've stood at where we believe the tent was, and there's no way that an avalanche would have caused them to run away from it because there just wasn't enough room for any build-up of snow. Right. You know, it was only about 60 feet or 70 feet from the peak of the ridge. They weren't on the mountain. It's believed that they were on the ridge, which comes down from the mountain. So there was nothing really above them. But like I say, it's uh, what's this space, really? So, you know, any any information I get, obviously, you'll be informed. Keith,
1: we just can't thank you enough for coming on the show and giving this update out. I think our listeners are going to be thrilled to hear it. And um, we appreciate the chance to stay involved in it. That's been real exciting for us as well. It's amazing. So you're going in April, you'll be going after they reinstigate the investigation. Yeah, they
2: they were going to go up in March, but because it's a TV crew, they have to get media visas. Right. And uh, and getting visas, it's not very easy. Um, I can tell you, I was scheduled to be at the uh, 60th anniversary um, conference in Ekaterinburg, and my visa arrived on the Wednesday after the Saturday had finished. Uh, (laughs) My visa arrived by courier two days after my visa expired. My Uh, visa expired on the Monday. I got it on the Wednesday. uh, So I shall apply well in advance this time.
1: How hard is it to get up there these days in modern times now?
2: Well, I've got a big problem because uh, my knee was badly damaged when I was up there. So uh, I've had my right knee replaced. So I was a permanent reminder of the Dyatlov Pass. They're talking about taking a helicopter up. So, uh, you know, which obviously would be three, and a half, three hours, 20 minutes flying time wow. in the I mean, it's the way to travel. It's a bit like going to uh, some massive music festival <laughs> and <a lot> <laughs> get the best tents, you know. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, it's not an easy place to get to, you know, even if you are going well, winter obviously it's, you're trudging through the snow and what have you, and, and summer it's no better. You know, you think, well in the summer it'd be easier, but the place is covered in mud and you've got to be reasonably fit it's it's not like climbing everest or anything like that but you have got to be in pretty good shape to do it you know um so it it's not the easiest place to get to which is what i think puts a lot of people off but having said that it's quite there's a lot of people go hiking up there there's um, stones about 70 miles north of there called man pupona the rocks upright rocks which I don't know where you could compare. They're, they're natural formations uh-huh. or what, but they're very unusual. So there's a lot of and people heading to that, go through the Dyatlov Pass. I mean, when we were there, we met a couple of groups on the way up there, and they come back the same way. So, I mean, you know, it's not that remote. I mean, when, when I was picked, after I damaged my knee, when I was coming back, two hunters took me back to Ekaterinburg, and they had one of these mega... Capable four wheel drive things, you know, they'd compressed air on it and everything yeah. for damage to tires. But uh, we bumped into a couple of people. There was one guy walking along, really weird. It, it, we were driving for miles, and it, sometimes it was slow, sometimes it was fast. You're going through, and then you come across this guy in the middle of nowhere with his gear on his back. He wasn't Mancy, he was obviously uh, just a hiker, but completely on his own. In a place with bears and wolves. And we said to him, you know, do you want a lift? And he looked at us quite wearily. He said, No, no, I'm I'm fine, thank you. So we left him to it. But you wouldn't get me living up there, you know, sort of hiking up there on my own. If anything could happen. No, like luck, say what happened to my knee. If you're on your own, anything could happen to you and you, you can't get a phone signal up there or anything. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty remote.
1: And then you're done for.
2: You are, yeah. you you, you literally are. Yeah, it's like that guy that we were just talking about. He died in the cabin of the coal, but uh, not only he was quite right in the head, but maybe at some point he realized that he was in trouble. But how the hell do you 30 miles, 40 miles through the forests to get to Ushma, you know, the Mansi village, you're absolutely done for if things turn bad.
1: Well, uh, we wish you the best of luck and we hope you do get yeah. the helicopter ride and uh <laughs> keep us posted yeah. on everything and uh we look forward to staying in touch with you.
2: Okay, thank you very yes, much. Thank well, you. Cheers. Bye.
0: All right, so a lot of fascinating developments there, right? Well, he's at the heart of the investigation as much as anybody right now. So he knows what's going on and there are a few things that he cannot discuss. So that's interesting. I'm dying to know what those are. Yeah, we're hoping to uh, get our hands on the rest of that information
1: as everything unfolds. But I'm, I'm excited to hear that he's going over there. Everything is taking place in March, which is by the time this episode runs, they will theoretically be heading back up there to
0: investigate it. Right.
1: It is disappointing that they're only looking at natural causes, I think, as we well, discussed.
0: <laughs> as Keith says, there were going to be limitations with what the authorities would be willing to look at but as he says what's optimistic and hopeful about this is that there's a window that's open yes so as much of a window as we're going to get this is it and it's best to dive in right now and and see what can be done about getting more clues to this as you said in the interview and in our own episodes on it the two-part series we did what you're going to get from the authorities is going to be shaped redacted limited aimed in a certain way to divert you from certain conspiracy kind of things. But in doing that, that's going to open up more conspiracy angles, but it's going to be limited. But let's see what we can get, because anything at all is welcome at this point. Well, one of the things he said that I thought was really fascinating was that he said there were people
1: or critics, or I don't actually know if they were inside or outside the investigation or whatever, but there were people who are saying they've only reopened this so they can close it.
0: Well, that is a tactic. Like I said, case closed. Don't look here anymore. Please stop bothering us. And thank you for the fees. Yeah, exactly. And you have to
1: think that if it did turn out to be something that the Russian government was complicit in, even if it was accidental, which you can't imagine that something like this would have been in the case of like a a military exercise or something, Mm -hmm. obviously it wouldn't have been done on purpose. But it was interesting what he said about the sensors and the equipment they were using. And maybe it would have picked up the fact that there was this metal object out there. And that's with speculation, and he said that, but maybe it picked up that the stove was out there and yeah. that there were warm bodies around it mm-hmm. and maybe to an early stage sensor on some kind of device that looks like somebody with a portable missile launching system or something.
0: Yeah, and as Keith was suggesting, there are those that believe, who have military ties, it's easier to just destroy it first, then find out what it was later. That's what he was getting at. Shoot first, ask questions later later. Because as you've seen with the history of some things, the way the Russian authorities and military have handled, it's a little heavy handed, shall we say. Yeah. They go in with brute force and then try and figure out what actually happened. And they don't get the same scrutiny or are held to the same standards for public answers that are required. So they can kind of do what they want and then shape the story afterwards. Right. And the other thing he said that I also
1: thought was interesting was how there seemed to be misinformation or cover-ups or deliberate disinformation about, like when he mentioned near the end of the interview, he talked a little bit about, well, it doesn't make sense that we have, you know, half of them are dead from hypothermia and half of them are dead from blunt force trauma. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't make sense. And maybe the reason it doesn't make sense is because something is being covered up. And what's interesting about that is that the end result of the mixed messages with regard to the evidence is part of what makes the case exactly as they want it to be so unsolvable. Yeah. You can't make sense of it because it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense because they're intentionally obfuscating the circumstances. So, they either all had blunt force trauma or they all had, hypo. if they all had hypothermia, then, you know, it makes sense that maybe they, for whatever reason, they left the tent, whether mm. they thought it was, whether it was explosive or they thought they heard an avalanche or whatever, they run out into a snowstorm right? without the proper gear on and then they all die of hypothermia. It's the blunt force trauma that presents the
0: problem. So, you That's know. That's an interesting aspect. And you and I both re-listened to our own two-part series recently. Yes. And in going back over those ideas where we ended up in the show, we come down to boiling down what we do know about it to a few key points. And one is that they were panicked. They were frightened, it seemed. It wasn't just, this could be dangerous, let's stay outside the tent for a while, so put your shoes on and all your clothing, you know, for a nighttime jaunt away from the tent where there might be some kind of danger, or even if it was quickly done, like, well, we can hear rumbling or there's something going on. They left in a hurry that was panicked and very uncharacteristic of their training and their disposition. It was very haphazard. They scrambled really to just get out of there because they believed at the time that whatever was happening at that position of the tent, that was not the place to be, meaning Let's rip a hole in the side of the tent to even get out. Let's not even wait to get out the front. Yeah. And so again, that just seems uh, like a lot of confusion, panic, horror. If you're not in a panic, you're not going
1: to damage the only shelter you have. No, that's that what I'm you're saying, gonna need th- later. These aren't
0: the type of people that do that. You know what I'm saying? You hear about that from other people when, you know, when they do panic, and, and that's why they say, don't panic, because you do dumb things. You end up making mistakes that the trained and experienced outdoors person would not So again, something happened to them that struck them with great fear and confusion and just terror. And that's the first aspect. They leave the tent in a very strange manner, let's say, very quickly and unprepared. In different directions. In different directions. The next thing you can boil it down to is that they got away far enough that they thought that they were out of danger or they were as far away as they were willing to go or could make it to be clear of this danger. Then they waited, and it seems that they scoped out as much as they could. That's why climbing the tree that was about 9 to 10 feet tall. Right. Some broken branches, possibly, or some cut down to make kindling, or for whatever reason, or to climb up the tree to get away from the Yeti. <laughs> that is, It seems they climbed a tree or something did. Yeah, And it's thought that because they were kind of in this now down sloping position, they needed to have a higher vantage point because they wanted to see the condition of, of the, the tent. T- yeah. So they waited out in the snow as long as they could because every hour, every 20 minutes is more exposure to harsh elements and your chances of surviving that dramatically decrease. So they waited for a bit. Then it seems that they thought possibly the danger was over but never made it back to the tent. Because even if the tent was damaged, that provides some shelter. That's better than nothing. You know, sitting out by yourself in the cold, open snow they know is certain death, so at least get back to the tent, and they never managed to do that.
2: Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Max. Now, back to the show.
0: So I asked Keith the one question that I really wanted to know from somebody who's studied this very well and looked at a lot more evidence than we have, and has a better insight on this, and that was my big question of those two photos at the end of the roll, the black and white photos, which are just mind-blowing to look at, Yeah, and I've always believed were the key to this mystery. He thought that those were authentic photos, those last two photos showing aerial explosions in the sky.
1: Yeah, you know what I didn't get a chance to ask him, and I was thinking of it, but I think we moved on to something else, was with the film being censored or redacted, like some of the film missing, That's some right. of the roles are missing, some pictures are missing, why were those two left in there? Was that an oversight? Did somebody exactly. make a
0: mistake in no, the cover-up? Right, as he said, the, the roles were snipped. There are photos that were originally taken that we can safely assume are of a sensitive nature that they wanted gone. For whatever reason, those had been redacted with scissors, clipped out of the role of negative from the many roles they took. For whatever reason, those two are, are still in there. And the only reason I can think is that it's an oversight, a mistake, and it's just out there. That does happen with the best spy agencies, as we've seen with the uh, MK Ultra papers that were accidentally filed and then discovered by the Frank Church Commission.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Just, you know, by accident. Oh, guess what? Yes, we did run a lot of experiments with LSD on unsuspecting people. Oopsie. Sorry. sorry. Yeah. Didn't mean to see that because we meant to destroy those. They just ended up misfiled. So stuff like that happens, you know, even with the most sensitive material, that's hugely embarrassing. So either it's a mistake or the other thinking is if they were left on the roll, they're just so mysterious looking that it doesn't really show anything, but leaves a little mystery, maybe some misdirection. If that was purposely done, it's like, well, no one's going to figure out what this is from them. It's not like you can see the tail end of a plane or a bomber blowing up, as Keith possibly suggested, some kind of accident where you can see identifiable parts. It's just really an explosion. Then you see a shockwave happening Yeah. at the head of it. Like something was moving very fast, then blew up. Also, it, like how do you remember? But I'm still like, it begs more questions. Also, wasn't the last
1: picture of a person or a thing, that weird sort of Bigfoot picture?
0: That was on one of the rolls. That was the last one on the roll though, right? Yeah, but that was not snipped as far as I know. That was no. the last picture taken, which again, we talked about this in the series. Maybe they were just goofing around. Like, right. was, like I said, for their I, remember, paper. Yeah, I remember, yeah, I remember I was talking about it. Somebody dressed up completely in black is was like, Yuri, put the hat on now. Yeah, yeah. And then that's kind of funny. So now pose like a Yeti in the snow and kind of lean over. Yeah. Because they were writing for their funny little paper, the Ortotent Times. Right. You know, it was, it's a school paper. It was kind of a, a fun thing for them to do. Say so they were taking notes about that. But we don't know because that was. The last roll that was taken, and I don't believe anything after that was cut. Also, it was either in the paper or journal entry where the Yeti is real, we must look into this further. Yeah. I think that was a note for writing of the paper. But there was a journal entry saying that, you know, some, I wonder what will happen next, essentially, and paraphrasing here, is that it was left with a bit of mystery as the last thing written. So we don't know. Again, the authorities had gone through their stuff and took away anything that was, I think, too sensitive. So you're left with a mystery, I think, possibly intentionally to make people wonder. So it doesn't lead you one direction or the other. And I think if those two photos were left there on purpose, that was the reason, is that it might have been connected. I'm still of the theory that that explosion had a lot to do with it. And either, I know this is crazy, but it did release some kind of psychotropic nerve agent that was possibly experimental. Maybe it was done on purpose because, as we also talked about in the series it was known, I believe, to the authorities that these hikers were going to be up there. Yeah, but it's that's not saying in that, that not that's that in that
1: region. They were not where they were supposed to be. Exactly, remember. So. exactly.
0: No, I, I think that that was probably an accident. So I'm not suggesting that this was tested on them. Right. But obviously, some kind of military aerial explosion, where they're purposeful or accidental, happened and it affected them. So let's start there. Mm-hmm that caused some kind of effect on the hikers. Either they were frightened by it or there was residue from this explosion that caused them to freak out and act irrational.
1: Yeah, but I, I think you could fairly say that if they were all inside the tent and didn't yeah. have eyes on the sky and didn't know what was going on outside and then they heard loud Military ordnance exploding of any kind, regardless of what was in the weapons or what kind of weapons they were, I think that could initiate a panic to depart the tent because you would think the tent is a target. Possibly, yeah, right. No, I'm I'm without it having to be a nerve agent or it's just like we got to get out of here. Yeah,
0: I would see that. I would just now I was going along with that thinking, but there are things that we just listened to where I did in the description of what was found on the bodies and the way that they left that I just think that they're too weird and too disorganized, even under that kind of panic. So if you heard explosions and you thought, oh my gosh, they're doing some military drills here. We should move for the moment. I just believe you wouldn't be terrified enough to not put both shoes on. It's still a little too weird the way that they were found and the disarray, the socks, you know, just the odd bits of clothing and how frightened they were. I still think that they would have presence of mind to leave out the front of the tent. Yeah, I don't know. It's because like, you also know, like, if you rip a hole in the side of the tent, you, that thing's ruined. It's yeah, like, but if it's, it's a
1: sudden life-threatening situation, I think your shoes are the last thing on your mind, especially if
0: these shoes are particularly hard and time-consuming to put on. I'm going by your point earlier that you made in the show that they were suddenly in the middle of a horse stampede, and they had the presence of mind—I think it was Yuri— Yeah. Said, okay, gather around. Everybody face out. Stay together. Yeah. Just hold tight. Don't panic. And the horses went around them like a rock in a stream. Yes. They made and, a circle. And so that tells me it's like, these people were cool under fire. That's you know, true. That's they, true. And so, again... This is what yeah, I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to
1: your point about you sure. don't have to tie them. I have a pair of boots in my closet right now. <laughs> yeah. And putting them on is a huge, ginormous pain in the butt. I know. And I know. And so when I go to put them on... Granted, I'm only going to the mall, but like when I go to put them on, it's like, I almost don't want to wear them. They're cool looking. So yeah. I'm like, all right, I'm going to, i got to sit down. If I don't undo the laces all the way to the bottom, it takes me like five, six, seven minutes to put them on. Right. Now, if I'm in a tent with those boots and I don't know what their hiking boots looked like, but mm-hmm. like, I'm presuming that they were probably were painting them, you know what to put on and take off. And I hear what sounds like an attack and then a threat on my life. Mm-hmm. I would not necessarily stop to put those boots on. However, you know what I would do? I would grab them and run into the snow with them. Exactly. I would would take them with me. That's
0: exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And that only just now occurred to me. That's what I was hoping you'd get to. Uh, Again, it's like, okay. Get out out of danger, then put them on. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Scoop up a bunch of stuff. Plus, they weren't that totally unpacked. As you said earlier in the series we did, Yuri had a demand that everybody wash their feet every day. Yeah, because I'm sure that just grossed them out. Plus, you get pretty gamey. So- That just shows me again that they were very disciplined and they were very buttoned up. They are cool under fire. These are people who do not panic because they've been in some kind of tight squeezes here and there and yeah. and, and stuff. So the other strange thing about that case is the blunt force trauma that some experienced, not all of them, right? And yeah. that again, that was some unknown compelling force, but they experienced head trauma, which was more than just somebody falling down repeatedly. And now, as we've heard from Keith, it wasn't like a very steep, long ravine. Right. He said maybe it's 20 feet at an incline. Yeah, he's been there. Yeah, he's been there. It's like, it's not something where you'd roll down and it, you didn't fall down the side of the Grand Canyon. It was a pretty gentle, rolling, sloping ravine. Right. With, with rocks
1: was, at the yeah. bottom, but the rocks were probably buried under feet and feet of snow.
0: Yeah. So then I'm wondering, though, I'm, I'm back to the explosions. Were some people closer to them than others and experienced a shockwave? that caused some trauma. I just don't know. But what I do know is again, what do we have? We have those two pictures, which again, Keith believes that those are authentic and real. Yeah. So those are very strange, but we do have that. That's the most compelling evidence to me out of this whole case. I will say until today, until
2: we
1: talked to Keith about it, I wasn't convinced because when you're finding the photos, like we did back when we did the series initially, and we found that treasure trove of original photos. Yeah, and I don't
2: think
0: we talked about the photos, the explosions. We mentioned them, certainly, but...
1: Well, we talked about them, but I was a little bit unsure of whether or not they were connected because you're getting them off this database. You don't right. know who posted them. in exactly another right. language. Yeah. You know how the internet oh, is. No, the it, it, way- <laughs> just like anybody could have attached these yeah. two photos to the end to create intrigue or be a troll. So we talked about them, but I remember I was like, we can't verify that these were part of the original photos. So I was
0: really glad you asked that question. Yeah, but It changes my whole opinion of them. That's exactly right. Cause I was going to ask you about something we mentioned in the series. The Yeti footprint with the pickaxe next to
1: it. Right. Where did that come from? Well, and that's the thing that made me question some of the other photos that clearly weren't the Dyatlov party, because that photo, there's no way that that came from there, because that photo is the photo from the Shipton expedition in 1951. (laughs) Yeah in that picture that was taken on Minlung Glacier. And that we now know because later, and it's funny because in the Dyatlov series, we're joking about Yeti and we didn't come to a conclusion on the Yeti, no, but yeah. we have had Dr. Daniel Taylor on. Mm-hmm. And it is easy to understand how, certainly with regard to footprints versus maybe some of the actual sightings, which Forrest talked about in the series, but, With regard to footprints, we have reason to believe that this may be a bear that walks in its own footsteps, and it creates an unusual footprint because it's the impact of two. But the point being that this there are still Yeti. I know
0: you say that. (laughs) I I (laughs) know you say that. It's a different thing. Not just me. The Sherpas who live there. Yes, the Sherpas. I'm with them. Yes, the Sherpas. I'm on Team Sherpa.
1: My point is just that we knew nothing about the Yeti when we did the original Dyatlov series, and then we talked to Dr. Daniel Taylor, who searched for the Yeti for years and years and years and came to some very interesting and scientifically backed conclusions about it. But overall, what I'm saying is in the cache of photos that we found that were supposedly associated with the expedition was that pickaxe photo that was taken eight years earlier. Mm -hmm. So why was that photo in there? Probably because the Russian person who had posted all the photos, because they were all had Russian captions. We don't know how or what, what that said. That's right. The person who posted them was probably just like, could it have been the Yeti? And then they put that in there and they mixed it in there, which is part of what led me to believe that maybe the... The balls of light in the sky were put up there to support a theory, a conjecture theory. Oh, I wondered that but, too. Yeah. But, you know, what you did tonight when you asked Keith about those pictures, he made it clear, no, those pictures are part of the original film. Yeah. They were there. We know the Yeti footprint is not with those pictures. But we also know the weird sort of person, big giant person in the woods is part of the original pictures. But right. on but on the other hand, that could just be them joking around. Yes. Like we said. So I agree that the balls of light do become really compelling. And of course, some people who are oriented towards the conspiratorial alien UFO theory, that would right. support their aspect as well. But if you come back to the more mundane explanation... And the one that Keith himself will tell you that he's leaning towards from through his own confirmation bias because he's fascinated with the Soviet military Mm -hmm. history and, and the culture of the military there, it does support the idea that maybe there was some kind of friendly fire collateral damage situation that was an accident. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, how do you own up to that? It's like he said, these are all very respected, young, good, upstanding members of the Communist Party with bright futures, well-educated, you know, just a good group of kids. Yeah. It's, it, you know, it continues to unfold.
0: It does a little bit. Well, there's some parts I don't believe will ever be unfolded. Yeah. They're clearly tucked away and, and uh, glued together. But there are bits that we can take from this and... It's much more of a clearer picture. It's not so unwound for me. I'm now of the belief that, yes, there is a military connection from the statements that we just talked about. The Air Force captain who made the statement he would not fly with the containers that had remains in them.
1: Wait, so are you saying that you've had a tipping point in terms of the theory that you're in favor of between when we finished that series and based on combining that just with talking to Keith tonight? I believe
0: I, I was steered that way. When we finished the series, and over the the couple of years, and then in talking with Keith, it's a little more cemented to Mm me. Okay. In that, I do think there's possibly some kind of biological agent, some kind of chemical substance that either intentionally makes you freak out or is a weird byproduct of something else they were testing. So you're insisting that the only
1: reason that they would have totally panicked is because they were introduced to a biological substance.
0: I'm thinking there's something extra to this ending, this conclusion, other than just, even if there were explosions in the sky or bombardment of some kind, yeah, that's a reason to panic and get out of there. But like you, like you just said, they are kids who are experienced in having to think quickly. And maybe you don't have the time to lace up your boots, but you take your shoes and run out of there. You scoop up what you can, because that just takes a second. And you don't destroy the one piece of shelter that you have in a weird panic. That aspect is just so strange to me that it's hard to wrap my head around what would cause them to do this. Well, we also know that the Russian military does like to experiment with those kinds of things, those types of chemicals. For example, we've talked about this before the Moscow theater hostage crisis back in 2002, the Nord Ost siege, as it was known, Mm -hmm. they pumped some kind of strange gas into the theater to knock out the terrorists. And 40 of them were killed, knocked out, and then I believe they just went up and shot them. And up to 204 hostages died during the siege because they were poisoned by this gas. Mm -hmm. And they never revealed what this gas was because it's top secret. There are some theories that it's a fentanyl derivative, but it's interesting that they are willing to use these kinds of things to whatever benefit. And if it doesn't go right, they don't have to explain it. So I'm not basing this on, you know, any kind of inside knowledge. I'm just saying that there are substances that the military, I believe, has experimented with. Possibly it was something like that. There is that weird aspect of this mystery that does not make sense, and that is the very ending of this and, and how it played out. All right, so let me ask you this as we get to your final thoughts on the matter, at least for this segment and this update. What do you think about the other two prevailing theories that are most bandied about, I would guess that that would be infrasound and something to do with radiological poisoning.
1: I think, and I sort of, I think I made this clear when we did the two-part series, I'm not
0: on board with the infrasound theory. I'm just No, neither am I. Yeah. it's, it's, It's not enough of a phenomenon or factor to... Evoke that kind of response. Yeah,
1: to me, it's more absurd than a conspiratorial cover-up. <laughs> right. So that's where I'm at with that. You know, it's interesting. I was looking at some of our notes from back when we covered this the first time. There's one note here that says, "This is from page 223 of Donnie eicher's book, Dead Mountain: mm-hmm. Radioactive substance, potassium." 40 was found on the bodies in trace amounts. It's proven to be a naturally occurring isotope. However, the clothing had twice as much radiation. It had an unsafe level for those who even work with radiation right. that was on the clothing. Yeah. So, But I don't think that would have killed them, at least not that quickly. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm it, of
0: that mind as well. The other thing that I tie into, and you tell me what has been found out about this, but the other thing that people point to for me that ties into maybe some kind of biological element here was the orange cast yellowish orange cast of the skin on the remains of the people yeah in some cases well there was organ
1: discoloration on some of them and also there was evidence that a few of them had been hit by a a large force while they were alive of some kind of concussive force right so it really is a mystery but honestly what what keith is saying Mm -hmm. Makes sense to me. And the fact that there's a crew member who's saying, yeah, we overflew that night. Yeah. That's quite a coincidence right there. And then later we have an ICBM base nearby, Mm -hmm. which means they probably were almost definitely thinking of that or developing it back at that time. Right. Which would put them in an early stage of defensiveness around the area in general. So instead of
0: something like a fuel air bomb, which we were talking about earlier, which uh, the... Essential idea is that a bomb has two charges on it. The first one produces a giant aerosolized mist of highly explosive liquid. The second charge ignites it and it just burns everything in sight. Kind of a new form of napalm. That was the thermal barrack weapon he was talking about. Right. right. Yeah. Well, there's no obvious burns on everything, including the tent and the whole area and the trees, as you mentioned earlier. But could it have been some kind of concussive weapon? Right that cause that kind of damage, also panic and maybe, you know, causing that type of freak out. But then would you see burst eardrums? Would you see other types of trauma on these bodies if it was a standard aerial type of concussive damage that they were experiencing? Because one of the descriptions was that it seemed like they had been in a 30 mile per hour car crash. Yeah. Something of, of that nature. Yeah. Of that kind of force, which is quite a bit. So does that make sense to you that it was possibly something to do with this bomber flying over and a mistaken sensing of intruders? Yeah. I mean, that it makes sense as yeah. a possibility. Right. Especially given the
1: state of the technology at the time. Yeah. And it could have just been a mistake. It could have been an accident. Yeah. An, an accident that you can never admit to. Right. Which is something we've come across before well, and <laughs> other things that were. It makes me think
0: destiny. of a, uh, A little bit of Earhart, if you are of the Japanese capture theory. Yeah. Because people try to knock that one down. It's like, well, why would the U.S. government, I mean, she's America's sweetheart, why would they not go rescue her? Well, maybe they tried, maybe they couldn't, and maybe they just want to sweep the whole thing under the rug because they're the ones that put her there in that kind of harm's way. Right. Or she was going into harm's way and they put something on the plane, like aerial cameras, that eventually got her in trouble with the Japanese. So they are to blame. So it's best just to forget about all this stuff. That ties in with the Japanese capture theory. And I do believe throughout history, of course, there are things that the government is embarrassed about that they would rather just go away or, or lead people away from questions. And certainly that happens with the Russian government. Yeah, it happens with every government. That's kind of my point. Yeah. That they, it's just stuff that's either top secret or just embarrassing. And it's easy for them to do that. And then if something
1: comes out, well, at least in the United States, then you've got congressional inquiries and a whole big investigation. Yeah, there's accountability here. None of that's really going to happen. Right. It's just about your reputation. But that's a really good point. Well, hopefully we'll get some new information. I'm going to be, I guess, a little heartbroken if this new investigation comes back and they're just like, well, it was, you know, turns out it was an avalanche, even though it's (laughs) a gentle slope.
0: Yeah, I'm still right. If it comes back, I'm just wondering how laughable it might be, because sometimes that happens as well. So do you think we'll have Keith on maybe in April or made for some conclusions if he finds anything?
1: Well, I guess it will depend on if the results of the investigation are public by
0: then. I think we'll wait
1: until that happens to have him on. And he said he's going to take some pictures when he goes back. So we get some photos from him to share with our listeners and and maybe some conclusions from the investigation. Who knows how long it's going to take, how much time they're going to spend on it. I don't know. Could it, be. It's
0: one of those things where I don't think they're going to move very fast on it anyway. It's not like they need to clear this up.
1: Yeah. They, it's a history
0: from 1959. So it, it might be one of those things where they just take their sweet time and then say nothing to see here.
1: All right. Well, Keith McCloskey, we'd like to thank you for coming back on the show. Also, please let us know if you figure out what happened to the Flannon Light Keepers. <laughs> right. Uh right. We'll be looking for the new movie with Russell Crowe about that, I guess. I think ah, that's, that's right. That should be out before too long. And um, be careful out there when you head back to Dyatlov Pass. I really hope you get the helicopter so you don't have to hike up there on your new knee because that must mean that you have another knee you could
0: (laughs) possibly have problems with. No, it's a terrible operation.
1: Yeah. No, I know. My uh, just had a family member went through it just a few days ago. That's what I'm going to say. Yeah. 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 So that's it for this Dyatlov update. And we're going to be back with another one just as soon as we have more information that we can share you. That's going to wrap up this week's episode of Astonishing Legends. We'll
0: be back next week with the first of a new two-part series. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Boland. Hi. Tess Feifel. And we give permission to Astonishing Legends.
1: Compensation.
2: I'm Max. Compensation.
1: I'm Tess Feifel. Copenhagen. Compensation.
0: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendel and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com, or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com
1: astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good
0: night.